This is Chapter 62 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a former New York congressman takes on the powerful gun lobby in his new novel. Then we get the strange but true story behind the biggest natural history caper of the century. Who better to write about the twists, turns, and red tape that surrounds national politics than former Long Island Congressman Steve Israel? In his satirical new novel, Big Guns, Israel takes on the battle between gun rights and gun control. He recently stopped by our studios to speak with our Steve Scott. Now, with all of the talk about gun laws these days, your timing with this book really is perfect. Set it up for us. It actually starts with an effort to ban guns in America. Yeah, you know, I served in Congress for 16 years, Steve, and uh, the the debate over gun violence dominated uh, much of my time. Um, I, as a member of Congress, witnessed um, and presided uh, in Congress um, while there were 52 mass shootings. And I really wanted to do a book on, on gun violence, um, and my colleagues in Congress and events gave me lots of material to, to work with. Uh, and so based on real events, uh, I created uh, this fiction uh, that um, the United States Congress decides that they're going to uh, debate a law that requires that every single American must own and carry a firearm, with sensible exceptions for children under the age of seven, upon application to the federal government. And people think that this is, you know, what a, what a remarkable fiction, uh, how far-fetched, but it was actually based on real events that I witnessed in Congress. And there is actually a kind of an upstart member of Congress from Arkansas, a person who's not really a, a big factor in Congress until they become the, the sponsor of this bill, right? Congressman Roy Durkee from Arkansas, who was based on several of my former colleagues, uh, decides that he is going to stake his ambition uh, and jumpstart his race for the presidency of the United States, even as this lowly freshman member of Congress, by sponsoring this bill that requires that every American uh, own a firearm. And the reason that um, I, I work this character into the book is because I think he's representative of so many of my former colleagues uh, who pick an issue, uh, no matter how implausible uh, the, the idea is behind that issue. And before you know it, that issue is just hurtling through Congress, despite the fact that almost everybody knows it's a bad idea. I want to come back to the character development and the, the real versus fictional in just a little bit. But th- this basically sets up tiny Asabwag, yeah. New York, as the center of the political world in the U.S. Tell us about how that develops. You know, it's really interesting. Um, when I had the idea to do this snarky satire from inside Congress uh, about why Congress doesn't respond to gun violence, you know, I, I could have just made it uh, all about the debate in Washington, D.C., but that would have just been a humorous version of the congressional record and nobody would be interested in that. I wanted to show the impact of this debate on real people on, uh, you know, a real place. Uh, and so I invented the, the little village uh, of Asabwag, Long Island, um, which uh, in the book appears to be in the, the beautiful, luxurious, glittering Hamptons, but it's actually not. Uh, Would it have been your district? 
it actually would not have been my district. My district wasn't quite as wealthy as, as the Hamptons. <laughs> uh, but I create this town, this small town mayor who's grappling with the issue of gun violence. This, this mayor uh, wants to actually ban guns from her village. Uh, unfortunately for her, the owner of the largest uh, firearms manufacturer in the world, Cogsworth International Armaments, which I think is just a great name, uh, he has a, um, a, a compound uh, in this village. And when he hears that this mayor is trying to ban certain guns, he decides to respond by instructing his lobbyist uh, to have a bill introduced that would not ban guns, but mandate guns. And that is where this congressman from Arkansas sees uh, the world at his doorstep. Oh, gosh, he sees 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue just beckoning to him. You know, the door is open. The invitation has been extended for him to run for president. He needs to make a splash. Nobody knows this guy. Uh, And again, he's based on not one real member of Congress, but a a collection of several that I worked with, uh, including one member who was in Arkansas, uh, was an Arkansas representative. And he just sees this thing, this issue, as absurd as it is, as his ticket to stardom. Everybody now running to Google to uh, check (laughs) Arkansas congressman to try to figure out uh, who this is. I I wonder how long you've had this idea in your head. Obviously, we are in a pattern of of mass shootings and, and the gun debate is raging. But has this been in your head for a long time and maybe this spurred you to write the book? I wrote uh, my first novel, The Global War on Morris, which was also a satire uh, of Washington, D.C., and in the case of that book, uh, a satire on the Bush administration's uh, uh, response to terrorism uh, and its overzealous monitoring of the private lives of of individuals. And then I wanted to do a novel about gun violence, and here's why, Steve. Uh, 16 years in Congress, 52 mass shootings, a a, a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, a church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, a a campus, Virginia Tech, and an elementary school in in Connecticut. And after every single one of those mass shootings, the number one question that I and many of my congressional colleagues received was this, when will Congress do something? When will Congress act? When will something be done to reduce these acts of gun violence? And I knew that the most honest answer to the question, at least up to now, was never. Congress was not going to act. I decided to answer the question and answer it in the best way I know, through snark, through satire, and literally from the inside, sitting in hearings during debates on this issue, uh, just kind of pounding away at my iPhone, uh, writing in real time uh, based on what I saw and what I heard in a, in a snarky way to explain why Congress is so paralyzed on this issue. You know, Asabog is a fictional place. Believe it or not, I looked it up because it sounds very <laughs> Long Island. It sounds like yes, it could have been real it? to right. me. You, you've already mentioned that uh, there is one member of Congress, in particular from Arkansas, who who maybe uh, you know plays a role of this, you know, a real-life person who becomes fictional. Is this a chance for you now that you are no longer a member of Congress to kind of, I don't want to say stick it to, but stick it to someone who... In the decorum of Congress, maybe you couldn't uh, directly, but now kind of indirectly. I mean, everybody knows who it is. You know, I, I left Congress uh, 
unindicted and undefeated <laughs> on my own terms uh, in order to devote myself to writing. Here's what I learned while I was writing in Congress. I would find myself uh, in these uh, situations where colleagues would kind of be watching me as I was writing on my iPhone. Uh, and many of them would approach me and say, wait a minute, Israel, are you writing about me right now? And I would say, no. And they would be disappointed. You know, in, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in Washington, um, we read books uh, from right to left. We check the index, see if our names are in there. And if so, then, then, then the book is worth reading. Um, th- this, this was not my way of, of sticking it to anybody. This was my way of answering that question, why doesn't Congress act, and drawing in personalities, but also making this the story of a relationship between a mother and daughter. Uh, a mom uh, who has very strong positions against guns, uh, her daughter, uh, who has very strong positions in favor uh, of guns, and not just deal with the politics of this issue, but make this a better relationship as well. That family dynamic that you, you talk about there, isn't that America in a nutshell? Aren't there families uh, all across America, maybe particularly in, in the heartland, in a lot of red states, where that is an issue, where... Uh, mom or dad may be pro, child may be con, or vice versa? It, it is reflected in the makeup of the United States Congress and many families across the country where you do have this uh, divide. And it was very important to me while writing this book to reflect the broad diversity of opinion. In fact, one of the characters in the book represents somebody who, uh, you know, who I've, I've, people I've met who really do believe that uh, if they do not have an arsenal in their homes, uh, it's likely that the federal government will kick in their doors uh, and, and take those guns away. And I have a character in the book who was the most fun character for me to write who reflects that view. So I've got liberals. I've got conservatives. I'm an equal opportunity offender towards both in the book. And it's all done through the prism of satire. You know, I've always wondered about authors and their character development, the little nuances. I, I mean, and, and I hope it's a compliment to an author that, that I say, well, I can close my eyes and I can picture this person. How do you how do you build those little nuances of, of how they look and and how they act and, and even how they speak? It's a great question. It's um, it's just observation. Uh, I am probably one of the least social people that anybody wants to be with because if I'm sitting at a dinner in a restaurant and I notice somebody, you know, who has a particular quirk, uh, you know, it could be physical, it, it could be how they speak, you know, I just take out my iPhone and just note it uh, and try and weave those observations, those quirks, those characteristics into my characters. That's very interesting. Um, next time I'm taking a bite off my wife's salad in a restaurant, I'm going to be looking around for a guy with an you're iPhone in, in his hand. So, you know, as you're writing this book, obviously it's fiction, it's satire, but are you thinking, you know, what I know after being in Congress from, uh, what, 2001 to 2017, mm-hmm. from what I know in this crazy world we are in, nothing is too far-fetched? I mean, could this happen? Well, in fact, the pretense of the book that everybody must own a gun uh, was attempted. Uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, when state and local governments uh, were working to find compromises to reduce the potential for gun violence, whether it was background checks or um, no fly, no buy, the little city of Nelson, Georgia, was so repulsed that some other cities and towns and villages 
were heading in the direction of so-called gun control that they went in the opposite direction. They actually passed an ordinance that required that every resident of Georgia must possess a firearm. Now, when I read that, I, I really thought I was reading satire. I thought I might be reading fake news, but it was true. All satire must have a kernel of truth. If it doesn't have a kernel of truth, it's a, th- a three stooges pie in the face. It's just fiction. Yeah. Right, right. But in this, I, so I had my kernel of truth. A city actually tried to mandate that its residents possess firearms. And what I did is I amplified that and brought it to the United States. Now, as I was writing the book, I talked to some of my colleagues uh, and would talk to them about this book. And I'm I don't know whether it's, it's funny or sad that many of them said, you mean you're writing a book about a, a law that requires every American to own a gun? I think that's a great idea, they would say. <laughs> so no matter how absurd it may seem, nothing is uh, all that absurd in Washington, D.C. You know, we don't want to give away what happens in the book, but it really is a, a battle of heavyweights. Tell us a little about about the back and forth. I mean, it's a, what do they call the uh, immovable object and irresistible force <laughs> meeting in the center of the ring? Yeah, look, the book fundamentally is, is about um, uh, the gun lobby, a cowering Congress, and the small town that is at the center of it all. Uh, and again, in, in a satiric, snarky way, I try and not only explain why Congress seems paralyzed to respond to gun violence, but those dynamics that, uh, that frame the issue, uh, the political ambition that takes an absurd idea and tries to run with it, the fact that every responsible person in the book, up to and including the President of the United States, thinks the law is a bad idea, and yet they feel compelled to support it for political reasons. The might of the gun lobby, which is so overly inflated, uh, and the personalities who get caught up in, in this maelstrom. So I, you know, I, I hope that the book is, is rich enough and textured enough uh, to explain to readers what is happening on the issue of gun violence without sounding like a, a polemic uh, or you know, just a dry policy book interesting the way you describe that felt compelled that they had yeah. to support it because of politics all the years you were in congress there must have been times when you held your nose on a vote and voted i when maybe you thought no voted no when maybe you thought i yeah for me you know the most um impactful vote that i still regret was the vote to authorize uh, the war in iraq so i went through my own moments where while i was voting i questioned my vote uh, and and had to live with it. And that's something that many members of Congress uh, find themselves in, that, that situation. Uh, and that, that dynamic, what, that, what goes through a member of Congress's uh, uh, mind as they're wrestling with those issues uh, is presented in the book as well. Your book is uh, getting some great reviews. I think one of my favorites is from Booklist, and it says, and I want to make sure I get this right here, the only way readers will put this book down is when Charlton Heston's ghost tries to pull it, uh, pry it from their cold, dead hands. <laughs> That's just fabulous. <laughs> I enjoyed that review. I must tell you, the other review that I enjoyed was uh, from my dear friend Nelson DeMille, who is one of the most prolific thriller writers in the country. Happens to live on Long Island. Very conservative guy. And uh, he was very kind enough to say that uh, Steve Israel is not only a fine writer, he's perhaps the finest, funniest, and best political satirist writing today. But then he went on to say, you don't need to completely agree with him I don't. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> What's harder, writing a book or writing a bill in Congress? Or should I say getting a book published or getting a bill published in Well, past? here's the thing. You know, I, I made the decision to leave Congress because I realized that in, in an atmosphere of, of gridlock, 
I was not going to write a law that would pass and make a difference. So I decided instead to write books that I hope would influence debate and make a difference. Big Guns is just out now. Do you already have other projects, uh, things you're working on? I'm working on a, a third book. Um, you know, right now I'm on book tour all over the country. And uh, when that settles down, I'll plunge into project number three. The political satirist Christopher Buckley calls Big Guns the only funny thing to come out of Washington in a long, long time. It's out now from Simon & Schuster, available through Amazon and other fine booksellers. Big Guns, former New York Congressman Steve Israel, we wish you all the best with the book. Thank you, Steve. In The Feather Thief, author Kirk Wallace Johnson explores one of the most unusual crimes of the 21st century, the theft of nearly 300 rare bird skins from a British museum. The fascinating story that follows is, in his words, filled with quirky and obsessive individuals, strange birds, curio-filled museums, Victorian hats, plume smugglers, grave robbers, and a flu-playing thief. Hooked yet? You will be. So I was about waist-high in a pretty frigid river in northern New Mexico in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range, and I was fly fishing for trout. Uh... Yeah, just about seven years ago, and the guide that I had hired that day to kind of teach me the, the intricacies of that river just mentioned while we were wading upstream uh, this museum heist that had happened and that had been carried out by a salmon fly tire, and I didn't know anything about salmon flies uh, until he pulled one out of his fly box and and. It was this kind of brilliant emerald and turquoise flashy thing that had about a dozen different bird species on it. And when I first heard about it, it all just seemed so strange as to be unbelievable. But this this kid, a young American named Edwin Rist, scaled the wall, broke into this museum, which has, I think, the largest or the second largest collection of ornithological specimens on the face of the planet and got away with it for something like 15 months. And he made a killing selling these feathers to this obsessive community of Victorian salmon fly tires who are, 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 uh, for lack of a better word, addicted to these rare feathers because they, they're trying to tie these 150 year old recipes they're called uh, that employ, you know, a dozen or 15 species of of birds that have since been protected by international treaties. I could go on and on, but I don't know if that's the <laughs> <laughs> good enough synopsis up top for you. No, it is. And, and it's crazy because the, the salmon fly tying community is really its own character in your book. And the whole thing seems so crazy because elaborate salmon flies aren't even necessary, right? No, no. And that's the other thing. So for any of your listeners that have never done this before, uh, and I wouldn't expect anyone to have died a salmon fly, but when you're fishing for trout, you're using these kind of ugly looking things that are made to resemble real flies. And you're trying to mimic the life cycle of the aquatic insects. And so if you're using the wrong fly, which might just, it looks like a little brown or olive colored thing and there might be a little chicken feather or something uh, you're not really going to catch anything salmon flies are a complete human absurd 
extravagant creation that have nothing to do with nature. Salmon are essentially colorblind when they're spawning. When they're spawning, they're not really feeding. They're just protecting the eggs that they've just laid. And so they're mostly striking at something out of aggression to protect their future offspring. And so, I mean, I, I wrote this in the book, I think, but you can you could catch a salmon just as well with a tuft of dog fur tied to a hook. It's just that it's one of these quirks of history, but that during the Victorian era, these British aristocrats made kind of a, they kind of consecrated an art form and they all tied these patterns and they named them after themselves or with these really, you know, fancy sounding names like Excelsior and the Green Highlander and the Evangeline and the, and the Jock Scott and they convinced themselves that this was the only way to catch the the noble fish on their particular stretch of the river. And that community has basically lived on. And there's there's this kind of diehard group of men around the world who are are still trying to tie these things. And Edwin the Feather Thief was one of them. And as good as he was at this stuff, he, he always, his devotion to this art form was always kind of shaped or constrained by the fact that he could not afford the real thing or the real thing in quotes was never really available. And when it was on eBay or something, usually wealthier men would snap it up. And so that, that was partly what, what led him to break into the British museum. He would have an unrivaled collection and, and he certainly did. And it might be easy for some people who don't totally understand this to say, what's the big deal? He stole a bunch of really old dead birds but this stuff had a significant impact um, on the scientific and historical record. Explain to me a little bit of that part of the story. Yeah, and you know, I, that's how I felt when I first heard about it. I was like, what, like what, what in the world does a museum have these things for in the first place? And I, I didn't know. I thought, you know, when you walk into the American Museum of Natural History, you just you just see what's on the display. I didn't know that there were all of these you know, there were all these collections behind the scenes with, you know, with millions of specimens. Um, what what originally started out as kind of just a quirky little investigation of my own really changed gears when I realized the scientific importance of these things. So in many cases, these birds were gathered before the word scientist was even coined. Uh, and they've been preserved for generations and generations for research before we they were they were collected before we knew what dna was before we understood the concept of genetic inheritance some of them were collected before we even had any kind of advanced microscopes um, these collections for example unlocked our understanding of the impact of ddt pesticides and so by studying the eggshells from these historic collections uh, scientists could pinpoint the introduction of ddt and show that immediately afterwards, eggshells started becoming thinner and less viable. And that's what led to DDT being banned. They just did a, a, a recent study of, by plucking feathers and they, of 135 years worth of these skins, they showed that mercury levels are rising in the ocean. And they may seem kind of like an arcane thing, but that affects our whole food supply. It affects not just wildlife, it affects humans. Um, these collections hold answers to questions that scientists haven't even thought to ask yet. We have no idea what what we might what question we might be able to pose 
to one of these bird skins in 100 years. And so in this, as a result of this theft, a, a huge hole in the scientific record had been blown open. And, and for me, that's when the whole investigation really changed gears because I realized that no one was really looking for them anymore. And, and, and that seemed pretty rotten to me, and I wanted to try to, to get them back for the museum. As I read your book, I couldn't help but think that your investigation into the heist and the missing skins wasn't too unlike the obsession some of the tires have to rare feathers. How much did this quest consume you? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, towards the end of the book, um, I discovered several more museum heists, uh, and I even found out who it was that that did them, and it was another fly tire. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with that information. But when I when I raced upstairs and told my wife that, about these new heists, she just kind of groaned and she's like, like great, we got, we're doing like a new a new investigation." But the <laughs> you know, it this seems to be kind of a. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I'll say, like, I fully admit, I became obsessed with this because I, I really, uh, I really felt like I was trying to right a wrong here. Um, but it, 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 I, it's pretty tough to know when to quit. I mean, I'm still just this week getting new tips sent to me, and I keep trying to tell people like the book is done, it's out. Like, uh, but I, I do. One of my hopes for it is that, um, you know, if people read the book and and get fired up about it that maybe someone else can can run the next the next stretch of the of the relay race and and, and do their own investigating but I, I do i do hope to be able to move on at some point so i don't know how or when <laughs> so where do things stand now is there still a blossoming feather underground as you call it yeah i mean they're they're very upset with me for using that that term but um uh but I mean, just the other week, one of these specimens, which seems certainly looks as though it was a museum specimen, you can you can tell right away by the cotton eyes and the way that the the bird is prepared. One of them just sold on a private forum for a little over five thousand dollars. A few days ago, some guys were posting techniques uh, for how to evade eBay scanners and fish and wildlife by using slang words and things that the algorithms wouldn't pick up. And I took screenshots of that post before it was deleted. Um, the demand for this stuff is as great as it ever was. Um, and it doesn't show any sign of abating. There is a, a new cohort of guys that are, are trying to reform and they're, they've started this movement called sustainable fly tying, where they're trying to kind of stigmatize the the use of of rare and exotic bird feathers in favor of just using dyed game bird feathers, like turkey feathers or or dyed pheasant feathers. But things that are we're not they're not drawing from species that are being hunted from the wild or that are going to lead to any kind of endangerment of, of wildlife. But they're up against the a pretty steep, uh, steep hill, if that makes sense. No, and and from reading your book, it certainly does seem that way. Unfortunately, so yeah. Well, the book is called "The Feather Thief." We've been speaking with Kirk Wallace Johnson. Thank you so much for a read. I didn't think I was going to be so enthralled with, and I read it from cover to cover. Oh, thank you. That really means a lot to me. 
that's this week's podcast. Be sure to tune in next week when we heap some praise on some difficult women. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.